If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to Dr. Chapa's Clinical Pearls, focusing on gestational diabetes. Our podcast will cover the February 2018 Practice Bulletin from the American College of OBGYN. Gestational diabetes is a condition in which carbohydrate intolerance develops during pregnancy. Gestational diabetes that is adequately controlled by diet alone is referred to as A1 diabetes, whereas where medication is necessary, the term A2 GDM is applied. It's been estimated that up to 7% of pregnancies are complicated by some type of diabetes and that approximately 86% of these cases represent women with GDM. Women with GDM have a higher risk of developing preeclampsia, as well as having a cesarean delivery. Furthermore, women with GDM have an increased risk of developing diabetes later in life. It's estimated that up to 70% of women with GDM will develop diabetes within 22 to 28 years after pregnancy. Now, the offspring of women with GDM are also at higher risk for complications. These include macrosomia, neonatal hypoglycemia, hyperbilirubinemia, shoulder dystocia, birth trauma, and even are at increased risk of stillbirth. Now, historically, risk factors for diabetes had been used to try to identify women at risk for gestational diabetes who required screening. However, in 2014, the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force made a recommendation to screen all pregnant women for GDM at or beyond 24 weeks of pregnancy since historical risk factors can miss about half of women who will eventually develop diabetes mellitus. In the U.S., the two-step approach for testing for GDM is common used. This includes administration of a 50-gram oral glucose solution followed by a 3-hour 100-gram oral glucose tolerance test if the 1-hour test is abnormal. Although testing is routinely done between 24 and 28 weeks of gestation, early pregnancy screening for undiagnosed type 2 diabetes, preferably at the initiation of prenatal care, is suggested in overweight and obese women with high risk factors including a prior history of GDM. In this case, a 50-gram oral glucose tolerance test can be done at initiation of prenatal care. If the results of early testing are negative, GDM screening is still recommended at 24 to 28 weeks because of the large proportion of women who had negative early screening but will go on to develop GDM later in pregnancy. In women who have positive 50-gram screening test results early but a negative follow-up test early in pregnancy, it's common to forego the 50-gram screening at 24 to 28 weeks and simply redo the 3-hour 100-gram glucose tolerance test. Okay, so remember, we're talking about the two-step process here, a one-hour followed by a three-hour if that one-hour is abnormal. There is a one-step two-hour glucose tolerance test that is a 75-gram glucose challenge. However, both ACOG and the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development caution against this one-step two-hour glucose tolerance test during pregnancy. 
In light of this, the American College of OBGYN supports this two-step process since there is limited data to favor the one-step 75-glucose tolerance test in pregnancy at this time. All right, next, let's cover how blood glucose should be monitored in women who have been diagnosed with gestational diabetes mellitus. Once a patient has been diagnosed with gestational diabetes, blood sugar monitoring should be recommended in order to maintain and confirm euglycemia. Fasting and postprandial values should be used for monitoring of blood glucose in women in GDM. Assessment of either one hour or two hours postprandial values can be used. No study to date has demonstrated the superiority of either the one hour or the two hour in blood sugar measurements. This is probably because postprandial glucose levels tend to rise and become maximally elevated at 90 minutes after a meal, somewhere between the two-hour checkpoints. Now, no control trials have been performed to identify optimal glycemic targets. Nonetheless, the ADA and ACOG recommend that fasting or preprandial blood glucose levels be maintained between 95 to 100 milligrams per deciliter, whereas postprandial blood glucose levels should be under 140 at the one-hour mark or under 120 at the two-hour mark. In terms of the specific diet which should be recommended, 33 to 40% of calories should come from carbohydrate intake, with the remaining calories divided between protein at 20% and fat at 40%. However, the actual dietary composition that optimizes perinatal outcomes in women is actually still unknown. Additionally, in addition to just the nutritional aspect, is exercise. Exercise, including a moderate exercise program, is recommended as part of the treatment plan for women with GDM. Such a plan should mirror diabetes care in general, and in women with GDM, should aim for 30 minutes of moderate-intensity aerobic exercise at least five days a week or a minimum of 150 minutes per week. Simple exercise such as walking for 10 to 15 minutes after each meal can lead to improved glycemic control and is commonly recommended. Okay, next, let's cover the pharmacological treatment options for women with GDM. Of course, we will cover insulin, touch on metformin, and glyburide. Insulin, which does not cross the placenta, can achieve tight metabolic control and traditionally has been added to nutritional therapy if fasting blood glucose levels consistently are greater than 95 or if postprandial values at the two-hour mark are greater than 120. If insulin is used throughout the day in a woman in whom fasting and postprandial hyperglycemia are present after most meals, a typical starting dose is 0.7 to one unit per kilo per day. This dosage should be divided with a regimen of multiple injections using long-acting or intermediate-acting insulin in combination with short-acting insulin. For short-acting insulin, insulin analogs like Lispro or Aspart have been used in pregnancy, and these insulin analogs do not cross the placenta. Insulin Lispro and Insulin Aspart should be used preferentially over regular insulin because both have a more rapid onset of action, enabling the patient to administer her insulin right at the time of a meal rather than 10 to 15 minutes before an anticipated meal. This provides for better glycemic control and helps avoid hypoglycemic episodes from errors in timing. Next, let's cover two oral anti-diabetic medications, metformin and glyburide. 
Metformin is a biguanide that inhibits hepatic gluconeogenesis and glucose absorption and stimulates glucose uptake in peripheral tissues. Now, metformin has traditionally been used in women with PCOS and it's often used until the end of the first trimester in women trying to conceive who get pregnant. However, there's limited evidence to suggest that this actually decreases the risk of adverse pregnancy outcomes, including first trimester loss. Metformin does cross the placenta with levels that can be as high as maternal concentrations. The long-term metabolic influence on the offspring is actually still unknown. The American College of OBGYN recognizes that although metformin may be a reasonable alternative approach to treat gestational diabetes, it's important to counsel women about the lack of superiority when compared with insulin, the placental transfer of the medication, and the absence of long-term data in exposed infants. However, it is still the stance from ACOG that in women that are deemed poor candidates for insulin, that means women who just can't get the insulin regimen correct or are at limited ability to self-administer insulin, then women can use metformin as a reasonable alternative. Now, what about glyburide? Well, glyburide is a sulfonylurea that binds to the pancreatic beta cell adenosine triphosphate potassium channels to increase insulin secretion and insulin sensitivity in peripheral tissues. Previous meta-analyses have noted increased risk of macrosomia and hypoglycemia with glyburide compared with insulin in the treatment of GDM whereas a more recent meta-analysis only demonstrated higher rates of neonatal hypoglycemia. Okay, so it's the college stance that despite the increased use of glybride over the past decade, the evidence indicates that glybride treatment should not be recommended as a first-line pharmacological treatment because in most studies, it does not yield equivalent outcomes to insulin or metformin. Okay, so where are we in terms of the oral anti-diabetic medication and what is ACOG's stance on their use in pregnancy? Well, taking into account that oral anti-diabetic medications are not approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for the treatment of GDM, the fact that they cross the placenta, and that they lack long-term neonatal safety, and considering that summaries of the current medical literature note poor trial quality while not being designed to assess equivalence or non-inferiority when comparing these oral agents to insulin, insulin is considered the preferred treatment when pharmacological treatment of GDM is indicated. Following this recommendation aligns with the ADA recommendation, and ACOG recognizes, however, that clinical situations may occur that necessitate the use of oral agents, in other words, in women who decline insulin or who the OBGYN providers believe will be unable to safely administer insulin, or for women who cannot afford insulin, metformin, and rarely glybride is a reasonable alternative choice in the context of discussing with the patient the limitations of the safety data and a high rate of treatment failure that requires insulin supplementation. Okay, let's wrap up this podcast with a quick review about delivery considerations in women whose pregnancies are complicated by GDM. 
Women with GDM with good glycemic control and no other complications are commonly managed expectantly until term. In most cases, women with good glycemic control who are receiving medical therapy do not require delivery before 39 weeks of gestation. In contrast, expert opinion has supported earlier delivery for women with poorly controlled GDM, but clear guidance about the degree of glycemic control that necessitates earlier delivery is lacking. In light of this, consideration of timing should incorporate trade-offs between the risk of prematurity and the ongoing risk of stillbirth. In such a setting, delivery between 37 and 38 weeks and 6 days of gestation may be justified, but delivery in the late preterm period from 34 weeks to 36 weeks and 6 days should be reserved for those who fail in hospital attempts to improve glycemic control or who have persistent abnormal antepartum fetal testing. Okay, this wraps up our podcast covering the practice bulletin from February 2018 on gestational diabetes. We'll see you next time.